Well, as a naive American, if I had to pick three races to do in Europe, not including UTMB, because I've heard of UTMB, yeah, what do you think I should be doing for 2020? Oh. One question. Yes. Do you have any training secrets? Like, do you have any key workouts that only Chris Marco does? I don't know how unique this is and probably because most people are probably afraid to share on Strava mm-hmm. when they do this, but. Hello, this is another one. Another one, <laughs> baby. Welcome to Now Is It Alvor uh, with Hans Christian and friends. We're going to be the best podcast that you ever did here and we're going to thrill you, we're going to teach you, we're going to entertain you. Like Britney Spears once said, there are those of us who observe and those of us who are here to entertain. And we're here to entertain you, bitch. podcast land welcome to to this uh english special edition of um what normally is a scandinavian podcast um this is a norwegian podcast it's mostly mostly about running mountain running trail ultra all that kind of stuff and today is no exception but i'm gonna do this whole thing in english so uh hopefully I will attract some uh, international audience in this episode. And um, the reason I'm doing it in English is because today's guest is none other than internet personality and badass ultra runner, Chris Mako. Uh, maybe you've heard of Chris Mako. He's, uh, maybe you've seen his YouTube channel. It's called The Mako Show. I'll, uh, I'll leave a link in the show notes in the show description uh, notes. So check him out um, on YouTube. He, Chris, he's, uh, he's uh, currently training for Western States. It's in exactly two weeks, 14 days actually. Um, today I'm recording this in Saturday 15th and Western States is June 29th. So in two weeks, he'll be towing the line at uh, Western States together with two of my friends uh, Thomas Ödru and uh, Halvar Schölberg from Norway so uh, I'm really excited to see how the, how uh, my Norwegian Norwegian friends do and uh, let's see if uh, Chris can uh, Chris can uh, get a better position than his personal best which is seventh place um, that's what he achieved in 2016 and in 2017 he had some issues and I think he finished 58th and this year he's back so let's uh let's hope for the best i think he's i think he's in shape i think he's in shape all right um if you're new to this podcast my name is hans christian smedsrod i'm an ultra runner um i'm an elite sky runner and um this is this podcast is my income it's my main income as a runner i i quit my job just like uh, chris has and uh this is kind of a experiment i'm doing i quit my job and i'm gonna travel 
around Europe in July and uh, I actually don't have anything to return to. I've, uh, I'm renting out my apartment and I'm just going to be uh, be this uh, podcasting running bum until I return. And I don't know when I will return. So uh, just a heads up. If you want me to visit you around the Alps uh, or northern, northern Italy, uh, Slovenia, Austria, France the whole Chamonix area, the Pyrenees, whatever. I have a interrail ticket, which means I can travel where I want, when I want with uh, bus and train, or at least by train. So if you want me to visit you, uh, document your training uh, ground and mountains with this podcast, uh, and you want a really good training partner and someone that can cook, um, hit me up. Uh, my name is Hans Christian. You can find me on social media as Hanserino. So that's it for me. Um, thank you to all my Patreons who support me. That's actually how I make a living out of this podcast. So uh, thank you to all of my Patreons. Yeah, that's it. I'll leave you to my my chat with uh, with Chris Mako. Chris Mako. All right. Bye. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention this interview was done on Skype or a video conferencing software. And I recorded the whole session and I will be releasing this whole thing on YouTube. So check out my YouTube channel. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll put a link in the description. Okay, back to the show. This is why I'm on this podcast. I, I checked my YouTube analytics. I think Norway is about 18th or 19th uh, in terms of uh, viewership. So we need, to, we need to pump up those numbers, baby. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> get into the get into the high double digits. Um, so I wanted to talk to you because um, I feel like we are kind of the same person. We live in a parallel universe, kind of. Um, we're we're almost the same age. I'm thirty. You're thirty three, right? Yeah. Uh, we both quit our jobs in tech, and uh, we're both uh, running full time now. And um, um yeah i guess that's that's pretty much it we we both create content online we we produce a lot of uh, stuff in social media so i think we have a lot to talk about and uh the first time i heard about you i think i was on a bus um i was in a conference uh, at google in uh, in uh, san francisco and i was i was finished with the conference i was on a bus from uh from uh, what's it called um Mountain View, Mountain View, yeah. yeah. Uh, over to Marin, so I was I was on the bridge, and I was listening to the podcast uh, called Ultra Runner Podcast, and you were on it. I think it was 2017 or something, and um, you were talking about. I mean, you just talked about you live in Marin, and I was like, I'm on my way to Marin, and mm-hmm. you said, I just want to race. I, I have tons of red wine so if anyone want to come over and drink some red wine uh <laughs> hit me up on social media and uh, and that's just what i did and you did not have the opportunity to meet me uh, right then but but I, I got to know your your local trails um you don't live in marin right now you live in boulder right yep yeah i i moved to colorado just under two years ago mm. 
So uh, tell me a little bit uh, more about uh, your background, Chris. Where uh, where do you come from? You, did you grow up in Marin or? Uh... No, I uh, my journey began on the East Coast. I grew up in Virginia, just right. outside of DC, and spent my childhood there. Moved to California for college. Went to Stanford University. Just uh, yeah, just a couple miles from from the Google campus. Mm. And then stuck around the area for the next decade or, or so, bouncing from Palo Alto to San Francisco. And then at the very tail end of it, spent about six months living and training in Marin full time. So um, not actually that many moves, and but definitely different lifestyles. I typically try to find affluent communities uh, with low diversity. I think San Francisco might have been the only exception, but, you know, Palo Alto, Marin, Boulder, the Northern Virginia area where I grew up, uh, not a lot of diversity going on there. It's a, it's a lot of upper middle class white oh, yeah. people. Oh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> it's, not by, it's not by choice that I have uh, I've chosen those places. Uh, I haven't chosen those places for that reason, but uh, they, uh, I guess the mountains and beautiful Nature attracts a certain ilk of people, mm. uh, adventures, and uh, that's kind of how I ended up here. Yeah. So during college, what did you study? Studied something that uh, I, it's not a very traditional major. It's called management science and engineering, which okay. is a, a mix of business and engineering. Um, I minored in computer science, but it was really about understanding how entrepreneurship works and uh, being in Silicon Valley, that was critical for understanding the sort of jobs and the industry that I wanted to enter. So it was practical for what I was doing, but certainly far from a traditional major that you'd see at every American university. Okay. So you ended up taking a job in tech, right? Yeah, I started with a very traditional job at Intuit. Um, Intuit? They're kind of okay. famous for TurboTax and Quicken and QuickBooks, so both accounting and tax software. And uh, kind of found my roots in product management, management there, took that and uh, found a job at Square, which is a mobile payments company, credit card processing and point of sale, small business, et cetera, et cetera, hmm. continued to grow and spend five and a half years working there, at which point I was just a little burnt out uh, by the tech industry, the work, the city, and had found some success on the trails, but knew that in order to, what I believed at the time was that in order to be successful at trail running, I needed to invest more time in it and give myself a real opportunity to see my potential. Mm. And so I dedicated the next several months to training full-time for Western States in 2017. Okay, so that's when you quit your job? To, yes. Okay, so to, to commit to Western States. And I was just, I had just turned 31 at the time, so mm. just a little bit, little bit older than you. Yeah, yeah. And how did that go? quitting your job i mean what what um you ended up having a lot of time right yeah, what did you use <laughs> how did you spend that time uh well it turns out when you're training upwards of three hours a day um, mm -hmm. and you add in all the stretching pre-warm-up stuff it takes up a pretty good chunk of the day i mean 
breakfast alone and getting your coffee in probably took two hours. You go for a three hour run, all of a sudden it's two or three in the afternoon, you get in a quick nap and it's dinner time. Mm. And so the, the time went by quickly when I was training at a high level where I really struggled was when I was either tapering or I was in between racing and yeah. I had a lot of free time in my hand and I didn't really know what to do with that free time. So that was the hardest thing for me was struggling to feel like I was a productive human being during that time. And mm. I had been working at such a intense level for such a long time that, uh, you know, type A personality need to always be doing something. And even when it was just running and that was taking up a lot of time that it felt like something was missing. And, uh, as such combination of some disappointing races, a little bit of burnout from the running, I decided to, to return to tech and spent another year working at, at Twitter, but did so in Boulder. So just a little bit different environment than San Francisco. Okay. Did you take the job purposely in Boulder or, um, I, did, did I you want to go to Boulder? I, I moved, I moved first and then I found the job. Okay. Okay. And why did you want to go to Boulder? What did you leave? Uh, Boulder checked a lot of the boxes for me. I really liked Marin, but the, the one thing that where Marin struggled was that didn't really have much of a social scene for someone in their, a single male in their like thirties is mostly families. <laughs> yeah. I thought Boulder would have a little bit more going on. It's a college town and it turns out that it's probably not actually that much better because it's a lot of young kids who are just, who are in college or finishing up college. And then a lot of folks move to Denver or outside of Boulder because Boulder is actually a pretty expensive city to live in. Okay. And they, they don't come back until they have families of their own. So I'm still in this kind of awkward in between, but it also attracts quite a significant number of folks who are either semi-professional or professional athletes because it's such a good place to train. You're at altitude, access to trails, access to flat stuff. If you, if you need to be running flat, great dirt roads for a road marathoners. So. There's a lot of folks in a similar position to me and I've been able to kind of connect with them and it's not something that was available in Marin. Uh, some of the other places I looked at had other issues like accessibility to an airport, jobs, et cetera. And Boulder kind of has a really good mix of all that. Do you train a lot, uh, a lot alone or do you do, uh, workouts, um, um with other people? I've, I've considered joining training groups. It's very difficult to find a training group for trail running. Um, a lot of folks mm -hmm. have coaches. A lot of those coaches do not prescribe the same workouts. There isn't a, there's a lot of marathon training groups where there's 10 to 20 athletes doing the exact same training. I don't think the same thing exists in trail running. What the, the guys are doing in Flagstaff, Arizona is probably the closest we have where there's mm. five or six guys who do some long runs and some training runs together. But even those guys don't train on the, on a rate everyday basis. I don't think so. Um, I think because it's such a unique sport, people want to focus on different areas, either improve on their strengths or work on their weaknesses. Uh, there's some s significant gaps in, in your running abilities. And so like, my Nike teammate, Matt Daniels, he's a very good climber. I'm a terrible climber. So when we go for a run, I'm struggling on every climb. He's kind of held back. And, and then on descents, maybe I'm able to keep up. But 
I feel this guilt when I'm slowing somebody down and syncing up on days when you're both running the same pace is never that easy. Um, but it does make a massive difference when you do have somebody else to, to run with just to have the miles go by a little faster. Mm. And do you work on your weaknesses? Like you said, you, we, yeah. uh, not as much as I should. <laughs> um, I'm pretty aware that I'm still not very good at climbing. I should be spending a lot more time doing that. Mm -hmm. But I also know that. And when you say climbing, it's obviously running uphill just to make things clear clear to the yeah, listener. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not, yeah. I'm not, I'm not rock climbing. No, I'm no, not no. even really thinking as much about really steep sections where you'd be power hiking. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm just talking about like finding an efficient pace on climbs. And, um, I, I have my own efficient pace, but it typically is slower than the folks around me. Uh, it, does that mean other people are working harder during the race too early? Uh, maybe am I, am I being too conservative and worried about pacing and, and saving my energy. I, I really don't know. It seems to be working out okay for me. Uh, but at the end of the day, sure, I can be spending more time on, on hills, but the most important factor for, for flat running and for a big component of the uphills is your just overall aerobic fitness. So I find if, if I have a choice between doing something hard on a hill or doing something flat and fast, I'll probably opt to the to the flat and fast just because that's something I'm more comfortable with. I know how to push myself a little bit harder and it, it tends to provide most of the same benefits, although it's certainly not a replacement for, for a big climb effort. Mm. And now you're training for Western States again, right? Yep. Yep. And uh, what are you focusing on right now? How did, it, am... how did it go last time and, and what's different now? What is it? What is it? What is the date today? June 12th. We are yeah. seven. We are 17 days away from the race. So I'm doing everything possible not to <laughs> sabotage myself at this point. There's okay. not, there's not a lot of fitness gains I'm going to get in the next 17 days, but I can certainly screw up from a mental standpoint. If I don't sleep well, don't eat well, uh, try to run too much, try to do too little. Like there's a, there's a, there's a fine line where I need to be, continue to put in some effort and, and make sure my body still feels in tune, um, you know, well greased, ready to go. But I also need to start conserving some of that energy. So I'm ready on race day. I'm going to hopefully incorporate some sauna training in the next couple of days because a big thing at States is the temperature yeah. where it can be, I apologize. I don't know the Celsius, but it can be over a hundred degrees for a good part of the race. That's about 40 yeah, degrees so Celsius. Yeah. It's toasty. So doing things to, to get acclimated to the heat, uh, is, is also important. And then figuring out what I'm going to do on race day, what I'm going to have packed. The last two times I did this, I was driving to the race. So it's just a little bit easier because you can kind of throw in everything into a car, mm. but you have to be a little bit more intentional when you're flying. So making sure that I have exactly what I need for race day and not having to stress about that in the, the day or two leading up to it is, is certainly something I need to, to figure out now. Okay. And how did it go last time? Just to, um, to recap. I'm going to apologize. So I, I, I knew we were podcasting today, so I prepared a 
very quiet <laughs> breakfast. <laughs> That's all right, yeah. Um, um, <laughs> what are you um, eating? What are you eating? It is a kind of a disgusting blend of I just wanted as much protein as possible. So it's just some Greek yogurt, um, cinnamon, a little bit of protein powder because uh, I really like this chocolate protein powder and some applesauce so it's just every quiet thing i could find in my fridge yeah that sounds like my diet yeah everything i everything i have <laughs> and i was also on a bit of a budget so the a time but time crunch so wasn't time for pancakes i was for sure <laughs> yeah um, we're gonna talk about you're, pancakes you're you're asking about uh performance western states in my previous go so yeah i've done it twice before you've done it twice okay yeah i was in 2016, I was very new to the sport. Mm -hmm. I had uh, just begun running ultras a couple months prior. Was lucky to get a golden ticket, which means I finished top two at one of a couple of races mm. to get my entry into Western States. Showed up probably undertrained. Um, I was working full time. There were some stresses uh, not that far away from race day that kind of got to me i had to fly to japan for work and okay. that was a lot to, to handle yeah but showed up in a decent place had a fairly good day had a lot of lows early in the race but found a way to compete in the second half and kind of flirted with 12th to 7th place for the last 30 miles or so and kind of went back and forth with a bunch of athletes and as painful it is to to race like that where you're close to a lot of other runners. It is incredibly motivating and uh, distracting to have have comp competition. And when you're out alone and you don't see anyone all day, it's, it can be frustrating and and tiresome to mentally stay focused that whole time. But there was always people around me, and there was this urgency to to keep going and push myself. And I was lucky to kind of finish at the front of that group. So I finished seventh that year. Top ten is kind of the target for for any elite athlete because yeah. that ensures you you show you get an entry to the next year um there's a little bit of prestige with that so that was that was a really good start in 2017 i certainly had a lot more pressure on myself i've been training at a much higher level i had been racing much better than prior years there were certainly expectations probably externally as well not only from a press and media standpoint where I was never getting interviewed before I had begun my YouTube channel, but I also had just signed a contract with Nike. And so while they certainly weren't saying, Hey, you need to finish in this place. Sure. I was putting pressure on myself to start this relationship on a good, good foot. So showed up on race day, executed my plan pretty well for the first half. But then something happened in the last, at like mile 30, 65 that I, I, to this day, don't really know what happened, but I just couldn't run anymore. And I had to walk the final 35 miles and, uh, went from fourth place all the way back to like 58th. But I finished, mm -hmm. I finished under 24 hours still. So certainly not the day I was looking for, but, um, a incredible, mental effort for me to get through that day uh, and now we find myself 2018 i was actually unable to even qualify i just wasn't in a really good state with with work and moving and all of that and wasn't able to to get into consistent good training rhythm and uh unfortunately could not qualify 
finally kind of got my act together at the end of 2018, raced really well at the start of 2019, got my golden ticket again, and now find myself just three less than three weeks out from race day feel, feeling maybe not quite as fit as I did in 2017, but certainly on the upward trajectory where I feel like there's momentum behind my training. I'm getting fitter every week as opposed to 2017 where I was really starting to to crest that fitness uh, peak and and start heading in the opposite direction. So uh, I'm definitely in a very good mental and physical state right now. And I'd be lying if I said I I didn't want to do something really good at States, but I, I do think that the most important element for these long races is, is not racing the field, but racing yourself and really tuning out what's going on around you trying to run as close to your a bit potential as possible and then wake up in the last 20 miles and try to race people to the finish at that point. So mm. if I'm able to do that, I'd love to see another top 10 finish, but certainly would, uh, would like to move up a little bit on the podium as well. Boulder is in altitude, right? Yeah, we're about, uh, I live at about 5,200 feet. So, okay. Um, under probably 1700 meters 1500 meters yeah yeah how do you think that will uh, affect your your shape on race day in western states compared to last time because last time you didn't yeah. live in altitude yeah I've, I've always struggled at altitude so my biggest fear the first two years at western states was that i wasn't going to be able to handle the altitude the race starts in squaw valley which is at about 6500 feet which is even higher than boulder mm you immediately climb to over 8,000 and then spend the next 30 plus miles at decent elevation. You don't, I don't think you drop below 4,000 until mile 60. So it's a lot of time at thinner air. And that was always a concern for me. It never played out to be as big of a factor as I thought it would, but I'm anticipating and hoping that because I've been training at a higher elevation that it'll just make everything a little bit easier. And I'm certainly not as stressed about uh, how my body's going to adapt when I arrive in squad because uh, I'm pretty familiar with, with the drier climate, the thinner air, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And uh, this winter, you, you trained a lot for, for marathon running, flat road racing. Uh, why did you do that? Can you explain um, why you incorporated fast asphalt running into your ultra, otherwise uh, ultra running lifestyle? Yeah, I, I mean, if I if I had my druthers, if I had my preference, I would be running on the trails full time throughout mm. the year. Unfortunately, Boulder has pretty nasty winters, which make the trails a little bit less accessible. Some Sounds people, like Norway. Yeah, some yeah. people are are trail champions and get out there with their micro spikes and, and get through it. But it's just not something that appeals to me. So mostly for my sanity, I chose to focus on roads, stay flat because while the mountains remain snowy and icy for most of the winter, the, the roads actually stay fairly clear, which is nice. And I was able to, to put in a pretty good training block, just working on my top end speed uh, and my endurance, which I knew would benefit me in the long run mm. when it came to trail running. Mm. Um, unfortunately, um, my goal race, I was hoping to have a pretty massive personal best, but 
the the field didn't end up being quite as strong as I hoped. Wasn't pushed and kind of ran by myself the entire race. I won it, so that was a good way to end that cycle, but it wasn't quite as fast as I thought I was capable of and was also pretty burned out from that training. So basically from the end of March through most of April, I didn't do much uh, structured training and really didn't start until early May. And for somebody approaching a hundred miler and in less than two months, that, that was a little scary, but now looking back at it, it was exactly what I needed to do because if, if I had attempted a 12, 16 week cycle focused solely on Western States, I would have been equally burnt out. I just don't, I can't train at that intensity that I believe is necessary for these races for, for much longer than that period of time. I, my body doesn't necessarily break, but my mind starts to break a little bit. And, um, having just six to eight weeks to focus has been uh, pretty key to, to my success and how I'm feeling right now. And you hired a coach for, uh, for that period, right? Do you, do you still have a coach? I hired, um, my high school teammate who was a professional runner and incredibly fast athlete himself. He, until two or three weeks ago, he held the 25 K American record, um, numerous U S road national championships. So just a really accomplished runner. He also knows how to push his athletes in a way that very few coaches can do. And because I've known him for more than half of my life, he, he understands me pretty well. He coached me while I was working full time as well. And I think the expectations from him were a bit high where he'd be wanting me to run 16 to 18 miles before work on a weekday. And Mm. that's just not really sustainable. But I thought that with my full-time commitment to running that it would be easier. And it, it certainly was, but, um, those, some of those workouts were so mentally tough to even begin that it, it became pretty arduous by the end. I had a ton of anxiety before every workout. And so after that ended, I, I, I knew I wanted a break, but I also think for my sanity, uh, given that I'm going to be doing trail running for now, the next three to six months that I, I need to make sure it's more sustainable and I'm coaching myself and doing a, a training program that is about as struck as unstructured as that as possible, where I have a rough idea of, okay, I kind of wrote down like this week I want to do actually the only thing I wrote down on my planner for when I was looking out in the build up estates was this is how much money miles I want to do during my long run. And I'd probably have hit those accurately half of the time. Sometimes I've gone longer. Most of the time I've gone a little bit less and I've, I really just haven't put much pressure on myself to do specific workouts and really go off of feel. And if I'm out there having a great day, go for it. If I'm feeling tired, uh, mentally not in it, take it a bit easier. And uh, without that pressure, it's been just a, a little bit easier to get through the cycle I still think about my mileage and trying to hit numbers and hit, hit vertical gain every week. And, and that, that's not a great mindset to be in. It's uh, kind of exhausting to try to chase these numbers, but Mm. uh, the more I've stepped away from that and realized like, Hey, you know, instead of forcing 12 miles today, maybe go six miles and uh, really let your body recover mentally and physically. 
has turned out to work out pretty well for me when the next day I I suddenly have a little bit more pop and energy to, to do something a bit better than I would have otherwise. Mm. So you don't, do you use Strava actively? I mean, you have an account and you, you post stuff, but uh, how much do you look at the stats and focus on that when you're out running and segments and do you, do you, do you think I, about that? I, I, the main purpose for Strava for me is as a recording of my efforts. Yeah. Um, I've you know maintained a running journal since I was in high school. We actually write down. Uh, yeah, not, do you write, do you write not, more than stats, or do you write uh, like uh, the thoughts you have during the run, and more like? Uh, I, I got pretty in depth, but mm. ever since Travo existed, I've pretty much eliminated any manual entry of that, and just rely on that to track my mileage and, and efforts. And uh, to be honest, I think it's plenty. I, I've, I don't think I've ever looked back, uh, other than looking at races to see how races have played out. I, I always, you always think that you're going to look back and see what your old workouts were and what paces you were hitting, but I never do. So, um, it's the historical information is, is nice to have just in case I ever wanted to. But, um, for the most part, it's really just about knowing where I am in the week and, and how much distance I've covered. Mm. Do you want to talk a little bit about sponsorships? Um, you mentioned you were a Nike athlete and uh, we uh, almost talked about pancakes. Um, you also, you were pretty active on uh, trying to get Costco as a, as a sponsor on, on YouTube. Can you uh, elaborate on uh, how you, how you sell yourself on social media as, uh, as an athlete and yeah. Speaking of well, speaking of which, yeah, yeah. Another, do you another, use Mark, another, Martin or? Um, yeah, I've, I've I've actually started working with Martin as well. Uh, Martin as well in just for about a month or two now, and um, you know, every single elite marathoner that I can think of seems to be using their product now, yeah, and yeah. I I wanted to give it a try, and it certainly hasn't disappointed. I I don't know if the intended audience for their um, their drink mix was ultra running, but they, they have a 160 calorie mix and a 320 and the 320, like 320 calories in a single drink is pretty awesome for ultra yeah, runners. Yeah. Like we, I, I feel like if anything, ultra runners have a hard time getting in calories, especially later in the race. And I mean, you don't even really notice it when it's, when it's in your bottle, it tastes fine, goes easy on the stomach, but I think that in general, the hard thing with sponsorships is proving to these brands that you can provide value. Hmm. And the other hard part is that I don't think very many athletes, uh, most athletes rather undervalue themselves. So when it comes to contract negotiations with shoe brands, which is kind of where you start, um, almost always I feel like athletes are probably undervaluing themselves. And instead of asking for money, they're, you know, just getting free product. Uh, same goes for, for most other relationships where um, the expectations for some of these brands about how many social media posts you're doing and how much you're talking about the products is pretty high. Mm. But in exchange, you're just getting some free product or just a discount on their product. So um, I think the, the most important thing is, one, encourage athletes to, to make sure that you realize that you can provide value figure out what, what that value is and if there's a way to measure it. And then 
when you talk to these brands, don't sell yourself short. Like I, I, I think people are very eager to get free things, but if you're getting a hundred dollars of free products, but then the requirements for social media are very high and you have to kind of change from an authentic personality to something that isn't authentic because you need to have a photo of your products four times a week, then uh, I'd, I'd probably shy away from a relationship like that and just focus on relationships where not only you feel like you're providing value for the brand, but they in turn are also providing value to you. And obviously financial support is a big part, but I think for most athletes, the most important thing is, is the marketing aspect and is the brand willing to promote this athlete, use them in their marketing materials, you know, say nice things about them when things go well and things don't go well. And, um, brands that really want to have this symbiotic relationship build up their athletes is, is really uh, where I try to stay focused and I'm most attracted to, and I just don't have the patience or time for, for other things. So, um, that's kind of my stance there. I think there's a very few folks in our sport who are in a position where they're talking to agents and mm. actually having somebody negotiate on their behalf and especially trail in trail. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think the, the value of an agent is probably a little bit higher in, in road and track because they're also able to work with meet directors and get their athletes into races, which is not quite as big of an issue in our sport. Our, most of the race directors are so welcoming and accommodating and excited to have athletes that uh, most of us can just reach out to them. But I do think there's going to be an inflection point where all of a sudden agents are going to become more important in the trail running community to really push the limits of, of where the, the funding comes from. When you, when you think about a Jim Walmsley, um, I, I really don't have much insight into how much he's making exactly, especially don't know anything about what Killian's making, but I have to imagine it's orders, at least an order of magnitude less than, than the top track athletes. And for the amount of exposure that they have and, and, the amount of attention they get in our sport, it, it, it just doesn't seem right that, that that's the case, especially when we're suffering for so much longer. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a 100-meter runner is running for less than 10 seconds. feels totally unfair. So who's your ideal sponsor, if you could choose? Whew. Well, uh, I think I look at, when I'm at the start line of a race, I look at what I'm wearing and kind of can identify key parts of my outfit because I think first and foremost, most important thing is things that I'm wearing in a race, people are going to notice and maybe be convinced to purchase because they see that, that I'm using these products. I think there's a big issue in our sport where athletes are attracted to the most money and they're running in shoes that may not work for them, running in gear that doesn't work for them. But I was fortunate that I found a relationship with a company that I love their products and I think make world-class shoes, gear, clothing. And so that's been great with Nike. But it also means that a lot of what I'm wearing is already covered by one brand. Everything from hat, eye gear, singlet, shoes, shorts, everything taken care of there, socks. Um, we're just about to get the train coming through here. So it's going to get a little noisy. <laughs> Be warned. That's right. That's right. Um, so <laughs> how often does the train go go by uh, every hour 
I'd say it averages about every two hours. <laughs> uh, but there is a brewery about 200 meters across the train tracks where within 15 minutes after the train, you can get a beer for $2.50. So really? uh, the fact that I live this close, I technically could walk across the tracks and, and get a, a, a beer on discount whenever I wanted to because I'm in such close proximity, but I've actually not done that nearly as much as, as, I, as I should be doing. Do you drink, but, uh, do you drink beer? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I am attempting something that I have never done before in a race since college, <laughs> but I am having a dry month. Okay. So no, no alcohol right now. And, um, it's, how it's do you less feel? about, it's less about changing how my body feels and thinking that beer is bad for you and more of just about, um, showing some discipline in this final month because, sure. um, I think that's that's important to do and something that I, I, I lose focus occasionally in the last couple of weeks of training and that's probably where it's most important to be as dialed in as possible. Mm. Um, so back to brands though. So yeah, yeah. one, take care of yourself on shoes and clothes. I found Nike, so I'm taking care of there. I think a watch is very important. Um, I don't work with any watch companies. I'd love to. Uh, I am approaching UTMB for the first time. So that, that introduces hiking poles and headlamps. There's another opportunity. And then the final one is probably nutrition where having a, a strong partner for hydration and, and, uh, fueling, it becomes critical. And I really haven't, well, I'm working with Martin right now and I don't even know how to pronounce their name. Is it Morton? Martin? It's Swedish. <laughs> so I think it's, uh, we say Morton. Okay. Morton. Yeah. 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 But, uh, I heard some yeah. people say Martin. Mar Mar yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's kind of like a, an ongoing conversation to, to find one that works perfectly because while they do have strengths in what they do offer, there are other companies that offer a more holistic suite of products from recovery to pre, pre-race hydration, et cetera. So, um, I, I think that's probably going to be one of the more important ones to nail down in the, in the next six months. Um, but it's also hard because it's, you don't often see what nutrition you're eating during the race. You see what you're wearing, you see what shoes you have on, but, um, what you're eating, unless you're talking about it a lot, it's, it's mm. often hard to see. So, um, I think that's a baseline. And then, yeah, we talked about Costco. I, Unfortunately, they don't sponsor athletes, but there's a couple of lifestyle brands that would be very fun to, to be involved with. And I've, I've talked a lot about pancakes and I cook a lot of Kodiak cakes and uh, I'm currently talking to somebody on their marketing team, but haven't heard back from them in, in a week or two. So I'm hoping to get something there. And, and that just became, came out of an, a natural uh, love for a product. And, and from that, I kind of share that in a very organic, natural way on my channel and folks very quickly caught on. And I think those are the strongest sponsorship opportunities is when you love something that you talk about it mm. without any sort of, uh, acknowledgement, credit, financial incentive, and, and it grows from there. So finding brands that, that I love already that would be interested in, in working with me would, would be great, but Again, like I said, the, the most important thing, and this is hard to find, is finding those brands that really want to promote their athletes and have them in their commercials, have them in their advertisements, and, and be a part of the brand. And 
uh, also want to hear our feedback and, and change the product based on uh, what we tell them. Mm. Do you think this sport is growing? Like, where do you think this sport is going? Um, it's certainly growing. The biggest issue is that a lot of the races are capped. Um, Western states, kind of first and foremost, the size of the field can't grow for uh, very specific reasons around the the parks restricting their ability to expand the field, and uh, as such, the interest in is going to continue to go up, but the supply is always going to be in that 400, 450 range. And that's never going to change. Mm. So, and how, how many uh, people start at, for example, the, uh, the, uh, New York marathon, there are 20,000, uh, right? Uh, I think closer to 40, 40,000. Yeah. All right. Um, and so like UTMB is going to be an experience for me. Cause I know that's several thousand runners and yeah. that's crazy because it's a hundred mile race. But, um, so I think the hard thing is that, because the field sizes are capped for most of these races and because the interest is so high that we're seeing just this huge expansion of races. And as a result, it kind of waters down the competition because there's, as an elite athlete, there's so many options to choose from. It's really hard to find races where all of the best names are going to be. And part yes. of the problem is, yeah. part, part of the problem is that people have different, uh, areas of expertise it's very hard to find somebody who's amazing at a 50k and also can excel at a mountain 100 miler and um there's a couple of examples i can pick of but i mean really you know, I, I i don't think killian today could compete with jim on western states or or a, a road flat race but i also see that killian is still incredibly dominant at mountain races and i i'd be curious to see what jim could do at a zagama or if he comes back to UTMB at some point, but yeah, and um, and, and both Killian or, or um, and um, Jim, they were not at the World Championships, right? Right, and and it's sad to me that something as big as what should be as big as a World Championship, yeah. or even in the U.S., our national championships are completely undervalued, uh, and just like nobody really uh, credits them to being any sort of races of consequence. We end up not always fielding the best teams. America just doesn't seem to care about the race. And whether it's incentives, the timing of the races, the distance and the technicality of it, I don't know what it is, but um, you just don't always see the, the best fields show up to these races. And that's incredibly disappointing. Like a world championship should be the biggest deal in our sport. And um, I wish, uh, and, you know, Solomon is trying it with their Golden Trail series. But even the Ultra Trail World Tour Series, there's too many races. Yeah. And uh, it also, unfortunately, they pick really hard places to get to. Like Canary Islands are not easy for Americans to get to. And uh, South Africa, you know, I ran Cape Town, Ultra Trail Cape Town last year. And yeah. that was a pretty big pain to get to. Australia is not easy. And uh, I don't know how you change it so that it, you make it easier for athletes to get to these places. But it would be amazing if there were three or four races a year where every athlete who was ranked in the top 25 in the world would show up. And, and I think that would really help our sport because right now, you know, you win a race that's that second tier, like, you know, UTMB, Western States, 
uh, a couple of these other big races in Europe. Like if you win that, that's a big deal. But the second tier, they might have a decent name to the race and it might have an ultra trail tag to it. But depending on the year, a field might may or may not show up. It might not be a strong field. And so winning it isn't necessarily as big of an accomplishment as it as it might have been in previous years when the fields were stronger. What, what race do you think is, is the most prestigious right now? So where where can we crown the best ultra mountain trail runner in the world? Well, I'm I'm incredibly biased because I'm in the U.S. and because I have a preference for runnable terrain, um, and very runnable courses, and so mm. I feel like Western States is the the best example there. Uh, from everything I see, UTMB seems to have the most. Uh, the best field of international runners. Um, I mean, Western States just doesn't attract the same international competition. It's really an American championship. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I feel like UTMB is probably our best example, but it's even that is tough because one, it's a hundred mile distance, which not everyone does. And it's, it, it kind of is way more on the climbing side and mountainous side to the Western States spectrum of it. And so it definitely caters to a very different athlete. So I don't think we found the perfect race that everyone would be happy with and would kind of be an equal playing ground for everyone. But I feel like it, it needs to be somewhere, you know, I feel like a hundred K is probably a great distance on a course that is maybe not quite as mountainous as UTMB, but perhaps a little bit more technical than a Western States, somewhere somewhere in the middle there. So I'm thinking 100K with 12 to 15,000 feet of climbing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and Europe is probably the right place for it just because um, I feel like Americans are willing to travel there and there's so many uh, opportunities. There's so many different athletes in Europe that uh, having it hosted in Europe, especially because the fan base seems stronger there would be the, the right call. Do you think it's going to become a, an Olympic sport? Um, based on the trends that we're seeing in the, uh, the uh, Diamond, Le Diamond League with them kind of cutting back on the 5K and 10K, I have a very hard time believing that uh, <laughs> they're going to be able to draw the attention uh, of an audience for longer distances. I think a 100K road race would be very interesting, but uh, I mean, even that uh, Hoka event that happened a couple of weeks ago mm -hmm. was, you know, it's pretty hard to watch runners for six hours in a row doing the same thing. And yeah, we, we watched, uh, we watched Tour de France yeah. for two weeks. So but that's a, that's a good point. You know, I think, There's a lot more tactics at play in the tour. I, I would be surprised if a hundred K was as, as similarly tactical where you have this advantage being in the Peloton versus kind of going out early and, uh, you know, the excitement of the final lap of a 10 K even, I just, I, I would be surprised if, if a hundred K played out similarly. So I don't know what we'd have to do to make it more interesting and exciting. I would obviously watch, but. There has to be a way to make it more mainstream and, and interesting for others. The other cool thing about the tour is the scenery and where they, they go through. And yeah. they can cover a lot more distance than you could uh, in a road race. 
Um, so have, have you seen the coverage to do of uh, Zagama? I've not. No, I, uh, a little bit. It's pretty actually. cool. A little bit. Yeah, yeah. It's very and, and, and that I mean that is amazing. Again, a lot of it has to do with just the amazing shots they have of the mountains. The terrain that they're running on is kind of incredible for an Amer- American to see. Like those ridges that they're running on just seem ridiculous. And then the the crowds at the top of some of the climbs are are pretty spectacular as well. But you know, if I had my preference, I'd rather see a 15 minute highlight of that race than than the entire yeah. thing play out. Yeah, and that's what they do after a sky race. They do like this 10 minute reel uh, from the race, or just the, the epic ridge running and the the Via Ferrata <laughs> climbs. Yeah. So I mean, I would I would definitely be behind a uh, a uh, ultra running in the Olympics, but I, yeah, I'm just I'm just uncertain of if if it's about making money and engaging yeah, an audience yeah. and capturing an audience. I don't know if, if if it works perfectly. Yeah, I think it's if it became a, a part of the Olympics, it would probably get the same reactions as snowboarding got. You remember that? Uh, I don't know. I feel like there's a there's a pretty engaged audience in that and yeah. a lot more people are willing to tune in and you know a uh, a name like uh white i'm blanking on his name sean sean white yeah. like there's a there's a lot of big personalities in that sport and yeah. um i'm not sure they exist in in our world too um you oh, know, we have chris I, certainly, <laughs> I certainly have strong opinions about yeah like when snowboarding was introduced i don't know if skateboarding is skateboarding in the olympics is no it i don't be? think so no but climbing is becoming part of the Olympics, and that's yeah. also controversial because it's it's a very similar sport to. I mean, it's very we can compare it to compare it to ultra running because it's uh, they use the mountains as their playing ground. Yeah, and I um, mean, if I if I had my preference, yeah, Winter Olympics would just be cross country skiing the whole time. You guys, you guys tend to do pretty well at that too. So yeah, we're pretty good at that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, I I just saw you're 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 um, uh, engaged in uh, Itra now, right? Yes. Um, what's your role in Itra? Yeah. So I was just elected as the runner representative for North America, um, and I think there's a Canadian representative as well. So it's only a portion of North America okay. and. Still a little uncertain of what exact influence I'm going to have, but for for what what I feel like I'm going to be doing at least in the interim is being a sounding board and representing the opinions of American trail running on at an international level. And ITRA, you know, is responsible from everything from the global ranking system that does make a big difference when it comes to some of these races, but. They also provide insurance. They also do drug testing through the courts program. So they're touching on a lot of different things right now. And I think it's an exciting time where we're still very young in the sport and the amount of influence you can have on, on the direction of the sport is, is pretty high right now. Mm, so mm. Uh, I'm curious to see how we'll be able to impact that. I think a lot of the elite athletes are interested in stricter drug testing. I don't know if that's representative of the broader trail running community because, you know, somebody finishing 100th probably doesn't care that much about whether the person beating them is 
uh, is clean or not. Um, so I think there's an interesting balance where we're trying to balance the needs of the elite athletes, but also the needs of the masses as well. Have you ever gotten drug tested? I, I was tested once through the courts program. Um, okay. Did they come home to you or was it part of a race? It was prior to a race. Okay. Um, I just had to go to a nearby hospital to get some blood work. Okay. Um, but just to the, you know, when I think drug testing, I think you have to wait in the bathroom while somebody watches you yeah, immediately yeah. after the race or somebody randomly shows up at your house and, and ask for a urine sample. And, uh, we're, we're not quite at that level having biological passports. So you can see how, uh, you know, biological levels change over time. I, I unfortunately, I'm not quite as well read as I should be on what exists and what trail running is doing today. But I think there's certainly a gap and a lot of it just has to do with funding and having the money to do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's what they did at the, the world champs last weekend. Uh, they had, um, each country come into, a um, to a room with a ITRA representative and the two best uh, ranked uh, based on the ITRA points uh, had to give some uh, blood samples and it was not a drug test it was more labeled as a um, health program so they uh, they take some blood blood samples they check your health to see if you're healthy enough to uh, to actually complete an ultra race um, and I guess they then store that somewhere, like your, your values, and they can compare it to next year's. Um, but I'm not sure if they, if they actually test for drugs. But um, yeah, we have a long way to go, I think. Well, speaking of world champs, why don't we, why don't we end with, uh, yeah, yeah. with, with your uh, recap of the race? I, I unfortunately was out on my long run, so I don't know much of what went down. <laughs> I, all I know is the Americans did not have great days. But Yeah, I passed some Americans. I think I passed all of them, actually. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it, it, um, I, I had fun. Let's, uh, <laughs> I finished uh, 39th. Uh, and uh, it's, um, I, I, I was the best Scandinavian. I'm happy with that. And... Um, uh, it was kind of a weird setup because this sport is also, um, I think it would be a fun race to watch from uh, on TV if you could do the live coverage well, because uh, I end, I ended up running behind a, a Dutch guy down a long hill and Dutch guys are not known for being very good in the mountains and the trail was super narrow and I couldn't pass him. So I, the... Um, I had to let the the fast ones go, unfortunately. Uh, so um, yeah, I was about ten minutes off top twenty. Okay. Um, it was a brutal start. Brutal start. First uh, five k's were pretty flat. Then we, I don't know how many feet it was. It was two thousand two hundred meters. I can do a quick Google search. Um, it's probably about 7,000 feet. Yeah, and 44K, so just over a marathon. And I finished in four hours and one second. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So uh, next time, um, I'm, I want to be top 10. That's, that's my goal. What are you yeah. going to do differently? What do you think it's going to take? 
I think I would be capable of doing top 10 this year if I if I'd played my cards right. I think so. Um, but differently, if I if I maybe more speed work and more specific work towards this kind of race. You know, like because I did transfer Volcania four weeks ago, uh, and so maybe more uh, proper training for for this specific race and and uh, a proper taper and not just recover, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you do how a lot. Often, how often do you get to race against the Swedish boys? I feel um, like they've uh, they've won over the hearts of the Americans because they've come up come over here a couple of times. Yeah. Um, not very often. Uh, well, I, I race uh, Andre Jonsson. I don't know if you know who that is, but he is a very good sky runner, and I race him pretty much every sky race. The other guys, um, I know Elov Olsson came to Western States the other like last year or the year before. Okay. Um, he came. I think he finished fifteenth in Comrades last weekend. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah, so yeah. a couple of times a year. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I'm gonna I'd I'd like to be out for uh Ultravasen next year. Oh yeah. I heard Jim Walmsley's coming. But I guess too. Yeah. Yeah, it's gonna be a fast race. Awesome. A fast race. Okay. Well, man, uh, well, Chris, well what's uh what's next for you then? My, um, my next race is uh Buff Epic Trail. It's in a it's in a valley uh, called Val de Boy in Spain. It's uh, okay. clo- close to uh, the Andorra mountains. So I'm doing uh, I'm doing the sky sky running World Series this year. So that's that's my main focus. Awesome. Well, as a naive American, if I had to pick three races to do in Europe, not including UTMB, because I've heard of UTMB. Yeah. What do you think I should be doing for 2020? Uh, if you if you like fast runnable races, or or do you want to uh, have some fun in the mountains? get out of your comfort zone a little bit above okay so you, you should do runnable. i prefer runnable you should possible. do trumsa sky race just to for for the experience so run on some uh, ridges and uh yeah get out of get out of your comfort zone and then okay. maybe um for to get a fast runnable race at transfer kalnia you you haven't done that right no uh you should do that it's pretty pretty runnable 75 really? yeah it's 75k okay. i think it's your distance you could be yeah you could do good there it's very yeah. warm though super warm mm-hmm. uh and then maybe i'm sorry there's a helicopter outside <laughs> uh yeah yeah maybe ultra ultra awesome yeah. Trumps Sky Race, Transfer Kalnia, Ultra Vasan. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I'll try to make it happen. Yeah. Hey. My, dr- my dream would be to, to get to go uh, race internationally once a month. All right. All 12 months. But uh, it's probably not realistic from a travel budget, but also that's a, that's a lot of racing. But I feel like I could get pretty excited about exploring some new areas and, and getting outside of the U.S., if you got sponsored by an airline. Airline and hotel. That'd yeah, be a good combo. That's an ideal yeah. setup. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one question. Yes. Do you have any training secrets? Like, do you have any key workouts that only Chris Mako does 
that you believe in and you think are unique? I don't know how unique this is and probably because most people are probably afraid to share on Strava mm -hmm. when they do this, but something that I try to incorporate a decent amount, um, is treadmill hiking. All right. And unfortunately my treadmill only goes to 15% and I really think it needs to be at a steeper incline than that. But when I've gone out and done a pretty hard morning, anywhere from two to three hours out on the trails. Uh, I usually look at the afternoon and I'm like, if I want to go for a run, I'll do like a four or five mile flat run. And it's kind of junk miles. I do it slowly and it, it makes me pretty tired. But the nice thing about hopping on a treadmill, you know, I put it at max incline, usually it's 15% and go at a, at a comfortable pace that isn't killing me, but it's also, I'm not just strolling. Like, I feel like I'm getting in work, but it's incredibly low impact. And you certainly miss out on descending afterwards, which I think descending is equally important. But you're getting in a bunch of quality incline miles. And it kind of sneaks up on me because uh, you can't track elevation very well on treadmill. Mm. So I might look at my week and it says, you know, I did 3,000 meters of climbing. But in reality, there might be another thousand meters that I did on treadmill hiking. So it starts adding up and I'm not sure if it's because of the treadmill or it's because I have long legs or, or there's some other reason, but I do find that when I'm in a race and I'm, I need to power hike that I, I do it at a pretty efficient and fast clip. And, um, in this latter stages of a race, if you're able to do that, that makes a massive difference. And I think a lot of people underestimate that. And, because in your training, you don't need to rely on a hike that much because you're not typically going out for that long of a period of time. Those muscles aren't activated as much as they should be. And, you know, a lot of the time I know when I'm, uh, haven't been hiking enough because after a run with a lot of vert where I do hike, my abs are sore, my back is sore, and you especially feel that during the race. And, and so forcing myself to do a little bit of that, I think makes a difference. So you um, still step on the treadmill, even though it's, you can run outside. Yeah. And part of it's efficient with my time as well. Okay. Okay. About a, do you have it at, in, a, in your apartment or? Yeah. There's a gym downstairs okay. in my apartment complex versus having to drive. It's almost 15 minutes during the latter part of the day to get to the mountain and, okay. and go there. I I'd prefer that if I lived right you know, it was right out my door, but most people don't have that access. And I'm also eliminating all that downhill. So all of my time is spent climbing. So I think that's, that's all pretty valuable. All right. Yeah. Cause I saw you did a 50 K treadmill run the other day on, on your U YouTube channel. Yeah. You, yeah how was, normal is it that? Was, uh, <laughs> it's not very normal. It was, um, snowing and kind of miserable outside and it was late may so it's not very oh, okay, typical okay. and my motivation wasn't super high I, I had missed my long run over the weekend and I, I needed to get in some some miles and just kind of found myself in a rhythm and suddenly the time went by pretty quickly and soon enough it it became you know goal of hitting 20 miles became running a marathon became running a 50k and uh, you don't have many of those special days where you feel that good for that long, but, um, it was a good one. You know, if I had a choice, I probably would rather, 
run 10 less miles, but climb 5,000 feet in the mountains. I think that's more beneficial to your training, but, um, you got to take the hand that's dealt you and, and do the best with what you got. And when do you start your taper for Western States now? When can you start Uh, relaxing? Yeah, I don't, I don't really believe in much of a taper. I, I think as soon as you relax and you take your foot off the pedal, um, you can start checking out mentally. Like every run yep. for me during a taper and the last 10 days of training always feels so hard and difficult because in my head, I'm assuming it's going to be super easy. I'm going to feel super good. And that's not always the case. Um, but the accumulation of a bunch of easy days makes race day feel great. So I'm definitely going to cut back a little bit on the intensity and there certainly won't be as much pressure on my long runs to really get out and do big days. But, uh, I, I don't think I'm going to like, I've, I've done tapers where I've gone less than 20 miles in the five days leading up to the race. I, I don't think I'm going to do that. Probably do a little bit higher volume and, uh, trust that I'll, I'll feel good on race day. Hmm. All right. And, uh, it's early, it's early in Boulder right now, is it? You're eating breakfast? Um, it's, it's second breakfast. I've already had first breakfast, so it's uh, 11.15 here. Okay. Have you have you uh, worked out today? Yeah, I snuck in. I needed to get in the tempo run, and my buddy who I've been meeting is unfortunately injured right now, so I knew I wasn't going to mo- be motivated to, to meet at a normal spot, so I just hopped on the treadmill and uh, did a little bit of a fart lick, a little bit of a, of a short tempo and hopefully this afternoon I'm going to get out on the mountains and ideally kind of put in a moderate effort on the mountains. So it was kind of like a double workout day where a little bit of effort in the morning, a little bit in the evening on tired legs and we'll see how that goes. But, um, priority is going to be getting some coffee in me after this and <sighs> getting in a couple hours of work. And then hopefully my legs will come back to me and I'll, I'll feel good to, to get on the mountain. All right. All right, I'm gonna let you uh, let you go and do your work. Awesome. Thanks for uh, for uh, coming on the show and for thank you and thank for, you all, uh, all you listeners for uh, bearing with uh, an English speaking uh, guest for the first time. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, there's enough uh, uh, English uh, speaking members of your audience to to get through this episode. Oh yeah, now there will be. Now there will be. <laughs> <laughs> all right, thanks, awesome, man. man. Thanks, man. Mm-hmm.